0: Shabbat Shalom! Of the 96,371 crazed fans crammed into Pasadena's Rose Bowl on New Year's Day watching my beloved Michigan Wolverines' epic defeat of Alabama's Crimson Tide, I'm pretty sure I was the only one there asking myself, where is a sermon to give in all of this? And as the maize and blue confetti showered down onto the crowd, as a collective delirium seized every Michigan fan present, I knew that today's sermon would be given over to the homiletical trick play connecting Michigan football, the Torah reading, and why not the challenges and opportunities confronting global Jewry today. Famed Michigan broadcaster Bob Ufer once said, football is a religion and Saturday is a holy day of obligation. If this is true then to be a fan of Michigan football is to be a member of a particularly zealous order or sect, the Opus Dei, if you will, of the football faithful. We have our team colors. We have our marching band. We have our stadium, the big house. We have our fight song, the victors. All right, that's enough, that's enough. All right, we have our game day chants. Some like Go Blue are family friendly. Others are better left unspoken from the pulpit. We have our traditions like the players leaping up to touch the banner as they take the field. The third quarter singing of Mr. Brightside and more recently the arrival of Victor, the frisbee catching dog. We have a shared history, the winningest program. Of all teams, we have our coaches, Yost, Chrysler, Schembeckler, and now Harbaugh. And we have our Heisman winners, Harmon, Howard, and Woodson. And while many teams can boast most, or at least some of these same traditions, for bleed blue Michigan fans, it runs deeper. Individually and collectively, we carry an unspoken sense of shared identity. No matter the crush of the crowd at last week's game, Among the Michigan fan base, there was a palpable feel of common courtesy. People smiled at each other as our lanes merged to park our cars, as we walked in and out of each other's tailgates, and as we entered the Michigan section to find our seats, free-flowing conversations on football and life with complete strangers. In the second quarter of the game, The lady sitting in front of us returned to her seat and passed out cookies to everyone who was present. By the end of the game, my daughter returned the kindness with a batch of treats of hers to share with all. This week, but really every week, as I wear my Michigan swag and walk in and out of a subway or elevator, someone will give me a smile or a knowing nod, sometimes even a go blue, an affirmation always reciprocated by me. In anthropological terms, Michigan fans are a tribe, a community based on shared traditions, rituals, history, language, ideology, and destiny. What brings us together, of course, is football. In Schembeckler's words, the team, the team, the team. But what keeps us, the fan base, together and stretches both lean and plenty is something else, or... More specifically, to something else. There is a positive force, pride, a reverential commitment and dedication that bonds us together. As Coach Harbaugh says, who's got it better than us? A joy, a pleasure, a fidelity, a delight in all things Michigan. It's embedded in our hearts, it connects us one with the other. The congealing agent for a global community that transcends age, ethnicity, geography, gender, or economic status. As the chant goes, it's great to be a Michigan Wolverine, the fantastic self-generated positive gravitational pull that brings us together as a tribe. But in addition to the positive force, there's a negative force, a push alongside the pull. Because for non-Wolverines, I readily admit Wolverines are downright insufferable. The list of rivalries is a long one. Notre Dame, Michigan State, Ohio State, the Big Ten, the Pac-10, the SEC, Rabbi Zuckerman. Everyone loves to hate Michigan. This fall, when I visited Ann Arbor, I picked up a hat with the words, Michigan against everybody. The difference that brings us pride in the eyes of the other is a difference that makes us worthy of scorn. Our wins are not wins, our brand is brittle, our myth is self-manufactured and unsupported. The season is a case in point, a series of NCAA violations resulting in multiple suspensions of our head coach. In the eyes of the world, it's proof positive of Michigan's ill-gotten and undeserved success. In the eyes of Michigan fans, it's a series of nothing sandwiches by which embittered rivals seek to exact whiny retribution upon their hated foe. To be a Michigan fan is not all rainbows and ponies. We have our share of antagonists on the field and off the field, the negative push of our detractors forcing us into a crouching defensive posture. The wagon circling us against them claws out dimension of what it means to be a Wolverine. These are the two forces, the positive and the negative the pull and the push that make us. We are. Sometimes it's more one, sometimes it's more the other, but over time it's the glue that keeps our tribal identity together the joy, the commitment, the devotion that pulls us together, the animosity, the enmity, and loathing of others that pushes us together. And what is true for one tribe? Well, it's true for all tribes. One need look no further than this week's Torah reading to see the same dynamic at work. Today, we open up not just a new Torah reading, but a brand new book of the Bible. Last week, we completed Genesis and its stories of matriarchs and patriarchs. And this week, we transition into our Exodus story of enslavement and then redemption. Aside from the leap in time and the narrative flow, commentators throughout the ages have openly wondered if perhaps there's a more fundamental shift at foot from one book to the next. Many have noted the transition from a Genesis family story, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, to the national aspect of the Exodus story, be it a people crossing the sea, standing at Mount Sinai, or worshiping the golden calf. Others argue that the difference between Genesis and Exodus is a difference not in how people function, but in how God functions. That a Genesis God who created the world can in Exodus upend that same world as we learn from the 10 plagues. Rabbi Daniel Hartman, a friend and a scholar who has visited our community on many occasions, has actually written a book describing the difference between what he calls Genesis Jews and Exodus Jews. Genesis Jews, Hartman says, are Jews whose sense of belonging is derived not by way of what one believes or does, but an identity into which one is born. The identity of Exodus Jews, on the other hand, is grounded on one's values, beliefs, and commitments, the former an identity of being, the latter an identity of doing. And while I think all of these, or amongst others, are compelling ways to frame the narratives and meta-narratives of our people, this morning I would propose that the difference between Genesis and Exodus is a straightforward, as a difference between the aforementioned pull and the push of tribal identity. Think of God's first call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. "Lachlecha, go forth to the land that I will show you, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Broad brushstrokes, in the book of Genesis, Jewish identity is a blessing passed down from one generation to the next, a distinct and distinctive people with a unique and prized relationship with God and each other, an identity that comes from within and is expressed freely without undue interference or disruption. Genesis is the pull, the who's got it better than us of what it means to be a Jew. As for Exodus, well, you don't have to go any further than the book's very first verses to see a very different expression of tribal identity. And a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And Pharaoh said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are much too numerous for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they join our enemies in fighting. So they set taskmasters over them to oppress them. The transition is sharp and clear. The first thing to note is a vantage point. In Exodus, for the first time, Jews are designated as the other. Jewish identity has switched from a self or divinely assigned identity to an identity ascribed by one's foes. The qualities that have made this people distinct and special in their own eyes make them the object of fear and loathing by others for Pharaoh, and by extension, the Egyptian people. The Israelite presence was not additive to Egyptian society, but just the opposite. It evoked fears of a fifth column, a fear that resulted in hatred, and a hatred that resulted in our Egyptian oppression. As for the Israelites, they had hitherto been singing how great it was to be them. It was a chant quickly replaced by us against everyone. What is a Genesis identity? a self-definition as expressed in joyful acts of positive Jewish identification. What is an Exodus identity? An identity ascribed to Jews by others by way of fear, ignorance, and hatred. It is not an airtight thesis. There are plenty of Genesis elements in Exodus and Exodus elements in Genesis, and there are significant limitations to my football fandom Jewish identity analogy but it is a working template by which to view the inner pull and external push of our Jewish selves. And as we look out at the world, it is a way, I believe, to think about what it means to be a member of the Jewish tribe today. October 7th was not just the day upon which a horrific attack was perpetrated upon our brothers and sisters in Israel. October 7th, as I've noted on many occasions, was a day a great awakening occurred in our people. It was our tribal moment. A Jew may or may not have taken Jewish identity seriously, joyfully, and devotionally before October 7th, but after October 7th, by way of the hatred of others, Jews were prompted to revisit their Jewish identities, not joyfully by the positive acts we do, and not for that matter by our own volition. It was an identity defined Pharaoh-like by others, by those who hate us, threaten us, and in some cases, kill us. A fight on the battlefield in Israel and Gaza as our brothers and sisters defend themselves against those who would deny them the sovereign right of self-defense and self-determination. A fight on campuses, social media, and beyond the battlefronts in our own backyards as our foes willfully allied the lines between Israel, Zionist, Jew, and oppressor, somehow turning an unspeakable violence that was and continues to be perpetrated on our people into making us the aggressor. We have appropriately so rallied to the calling of the hour. Our sense of Jewish tribalism is engaged, activated, and supercharged. We've all become Exodus Jews a Jewish identity shaped by our tribal instinct of self-defense, a response to events tragic, traumatic, not of our choosing, and beyond our control. The challenge and opportunity we presently face is to find a way to maintain and integrate these two strands of our identity, Exodus and Genesis, into our being. This conflict is not and will not be a short one, neither in the Middle East nor here in America. The news is bad and I fear it will get worse. 2024 has not gotten off to a good start. We need strength, we need stamina, and we need solidarity. We are without question in an Exodus chapter of our people's existence. We must all find our front lines, the places where we as individuals and as a community can make a difference and fight the fight for our people, politically, philanthropically, and otherwise. We must do all of this. And we must never forget that we are also a people of Genesis. We must give of ourselves towards defending Israel and We must light Shabbat candles. We must go to ADL briefings on how to talk to our children about anti-Semitism, And we must bring our children to shul so they can love Shabbat and community. We must fight the curricular and cultural battles in our institutions of higher learning. And we must take seriously our commitment to Jewish learning. We must celebrate our births, b'nai mitzvahs and weddings, reminding each other, our children, and most of all, ourselves, (coughs) that this thing we are fighting for, Jews and Judaism, is a joy, privilege, and blessing to us and to all people. Put simply, to allow my Jewish identity to be reduced to fighting anti-Semitism is a victory that I refuse to grant my foe. It was great to be a Jew on October 6th and it's still great to be a Jew today. Not just the push and not just the pull, but the centripetal momentum of the two together, that is the generative force by which our community will be sustained. Sometimes our sense of tribal identity comes by way of a warm spark within. Sometimes the spark comes by way of an unsought, an untoward force from without. I would, without question, choose the former over the latter any day. But the important thing is that the spark comes. Isn't that not the story of our Parsha, of our people, and of Moses himself, an assimilated Jew who, seeking the, seeing the affliction of his Hebrew kinsmen and the inaction of those around him, steps up to save his brother and eventually his people, leading us to a covenanted peoplehood of which we are still the beneficiaries today. As a prayer book teaches, Asherenu ma'tob mana, ma'naim goralenu how good is our lot, how pleasant is our fortune, and how beautiful is our heritage. May we, as a people of Genesis and Exodus, stand up, and stand tall in defense of our people, and may we never lose sight of the joy and the privilege that comes with being a Jew today. And yes, go blue. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out pasyn.org. See you in Shul. Hallelujah.